What a privilege to be able to preach after that. Now we're all in Jerusalem. Now we'll come back home. That was wonderful. We want to continue our series on fall proof. The reason is because, as Pastor Jamie pointed out last week, last couple weeks, this is really critical. Life gets really tough, and sometimes it's tough enough to knock you off your faith. And we need to get a real handle on what is the lifeblood of our faith. Because if we don't, we're going to stumble. We're going to fall again and again to the shame of our Lord Jesus Christ, through the shame of the hope of Jerusalem and our future. That's why Peter says, after he gives this list of this lifeblood, he says in 2 Peter 1.8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they neither, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. He says, in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he who lacks, now here's, here's the kick in the backside. For he who lacks these qualities is blind, short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things, you will not stumble. That's why literally this is foolproof. If we can understand the these things that he's talking about. If you haven't already, open your Bibles or turn your phones on, I've learned. I thought you were being rude, but I understand. I've been called tech-tarded, and I embrace that myself. But, so either put your Bibles on your phone, but open up to 2 Peter. The book of 2 Peter. You know, Peter was not expecting, I believe, to write this book. Because he pretty well, in his first letter, put it all out there. And he ends his first letter by saying, now, as a leader, as a presbyteros, as an elder, I'm encouraging you leaders, shepherd the flock. You don't do it for sordid gain. You don't do it out of lordship. You don't do it on a compulsion. He says you do it by example. Be examples to the flock. We pick up from each other. We inspire one another. Now, the reason Peter's not sure he gets to write his second book because Jesus made him a promise. Remember, Peter had betrayed Christ on three occasions. And after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this really bothered Peter. And Jesus restores him. They're walking on the beach in John 21. And Jesus says, Peter, you love me? Oh, Lord, you know I care. Then, 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 then tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Three times Jesus restores him. Peter, forget the past. Forget how you blew it in the past. Right now, let me give you some good news. You're going to die a martyr. <laughs> this is good news? Well, at first, you know, I'm glad he never told me that as I'd wake up each morning, oh man, is this the day of my slaughter? But the fact is, is that Jesus knew Peter's greatest fear is he would blow it again. He would stumble again. And Jesus says, no, you're going to be faithful to me this time, even to the point where they're going to take you to Rome and crucify you upside down. So Peter knows his time is short. He doesn't know he has an opportunity, and he realizes after 1 Peter, I'm still here. I better get down to his business here. Writes one more letter. This one is a lot more emotional. And as he remembers, he's talked about be examples. It hits him. Be examples of what? And so he starts off this second letter by saying, let me answer that question. 
And he says this is so important that as Jamie told us last week, taught us that what faith is all about, it's, it's, it's the right person trusting the right object. But here's the remarkable thing. God knows we don't have a shot at that. How are you going to trust somebody you've never met that doesn't talk to you verbally, that you can't hold, you can't touch? He's invisible. He is spirit. The human spirit has no capacity to trust somebody that seems to have no substance. But then, notice how Peter began this paragraph in 2 Peter 1. Peter says in verse 1, Simon Peter. He says, yeah, I'm Peter. Jesus called me Petros. But I remember I'm the old Simon too. So in humility, he says, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have, catch this, received a faith of the same kind as ours. We apostles, faith in Jesus Christ. Do you remember uh, ninth grade geometry? Remember when they first taught you an isosceles triangle? An isosceles triangle is a triangle that has two equal sides. Isos. That's the exact same word Peter uses here. We get this idea, well, God gave the apostles super-duper faith. That's why they could do what they did. Peter says, not so. No, 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 no. Peter says, I'm writing to those, you, who have received the isos, the exact same kind of faith, a capacity to trust God in such a way that we can rest. And the moment we are resting in what we're trusting God for, whatever promise, that's believing. And believing is always followed with assurance. That's something supernatural. That's a gift from God. It's like a big chessboard. God says, I'll make the first move. Boom. I'll give you faith. You'll receive the same kind of faith the apostles received. No more, no less. A capacity to trust God in such a way that you can rest. And God, in that believing, he will give you assurance. Well, we know what Peter did with his faith. Now, Peter wants to know, what are you going to do with the gift you received, the gift of your faith? There, there was a man who was very wealthy, and he's also very, very kind. And, and his heart was broken when he saw a young orphan boy who was poor and desolate. And this old man had made arrangements for the young man he brought into his home, legally adopting him as his, his own son. He, he gave the youth everything he needed to be happy. A, a great sense of worth, guidance, hope for the future, all the things which the boy could never have achieved for himself. But the old man's heart was broken again because a young boy, for some reason, could never believe it and would not embrace it. So he squandered the wealth, ignored the guidance, and even though he was still the wealthy man's son, he was as miserable as he was before. The Bible says God is our heavenly Father. We are no longer relating creatures to a creator because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we've been declared like in a court, justified, declared in a right relationship with God, a relationship of a son to a father, a daughter to a father. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, God says, I'll be a father to you, and you'll be sons and daughters to me. And it is in the heart of a son and a daughter when the Spirit of God has come upon them. It's not just your sins have been forgiven. It's the fact that the Spirit of God has come within you and given you desires you never had before. 
Like Ezekiel 36 says, I'll pull out your old heart of stone. I'll give you a new heart. My spirit will come within you and give you the desire to honor God as your father. Just like any son, any daughter would want to do to honor their father. Our only problem is we don't have a clue how to do that. You know, sometimes the gospel is preached in such a way that people think that this is all about a contract with God. And there's a lot of folks that have contract faith. That is, well, I was told that, the, what a, do I have a deal for you? Sign on the bottom line. Just pray this prayer. You get your sins forgiven. No longer any shame and guilt. And you get fire insurance. You go to heaven. You go, well, that's a deal. I'll pray the pick and prayer. And then it goes in the file. And then we live our lives as if it's just some contract that we think about in the future when we die. But the gospel is not about a contract faith. It's about a covenant, covenant faith. It's a promise that we made to God that we would no longer ignore him as our creator and like creatures, but that we're in covenant with God as his sons and daughters with this deep desire to honor him as father. It's a covenant. It's something that's as real every day of our lives. With our problems, we have this deep desire to honor God as our Father, but who knows how to do that? You smile a lot, go to church, pray a lot, keep a lot of rules and regulations. I mean, oh my, wouldn't it be great if we had somebody who knew exactly how to honor the God in such a way that the Father would be pleased? I mean, wouldn't it be great if somebody actually heard from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased? Like right after his baptism. Or from heaven a second time in Matthew 17. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Follow him. That's why we follow Jesus Christ. We're not disciples of God. We're not disciples of the Holy Spirit. We're disciples of the son. Because the more that I become like Jesus Christ, I will learn how to honor God as my father. And God always honors the greatest likeness to his son. Therefore, that's why Jesus, this is a covenant to honor the Father and follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, now, here he says, now you need to take this faith that I've given you. Now he says, all right, it's your move. And look at verse five. Now, for this very reason, apply all diligence in your faith. Supply now, I have the New American Standard. The Apostle Paul and I have used this for a long time, but, but many others don't. But he says here, supply moral excellence and to your moral excellence knowledge. So, so he says, now I've given you this faith. Now you add these final seven qualities. And it's going to be you adding these final seven qualities that will give the lifeblood to your faith and you will not fall. You will not fall. Well, if this is such a big deal, uh, the King James translates this supplement or supply virtue. Uh, um, the, most of the translations will translate this word virtue. Like I said, New American Standard, moral excellence. Whatever this thing is, it's the first one. And apparently if we don't nail this one down, we're not getting to the other six. So this is the anchor, the first thing. And without this, we don't get down the line to any of the other qualities. This is why this is a big deal to understand. But when he says, now add to your faith, virtue. Okay, moral excellence. He might as just have said bubble gum, as far as I'm concerned. 
Because what in the world? Anybody want to take a shot? Okay, on the count of three, let's all be virtue. One, two, three, virtue. We don't have a clue. All right, let's just be morally excellent. I mean, what, what in the world? Like I said, you might as well call it bubble gum because I don't have a clue what I do now, but not when I began to study this years ago. What is this virtue, moral excellence? Is this one of those, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go with girls who do? Is that virtue? Is that moral excellence? Boy, if that is, my dog is more virtue than me, and I don't even own a dog. Our English word, as we try to figure this out, uh, for virtue comes from, well, you guessed it, the Latin, from the word ver. The word viral is the Latin word for man. The Latin word virtus speaks of a kind of courage. A kind of courage. A, a courage, a sense of what you believe to be true. And that truth is important to you. So it's not just the fact that there's some things you believe to be true, but because you believe they're true, you won't compromise. That's the kind of courage that this word speaks of. So, so what does virtue actually do? I have the privilege of teaching the president's class for Phoenix Seminary right here at Scottsdale Bible Church on Monday nights or in the student center, and we're going through the book of Esther. And those who, who know a little bit about the book of Esther, remember Nay, uh, uh, Haman's this horrible guy, and he's manipulated Ahasuerus, Xerxes, the king of the Persian Empire, to eradicate, annihilate all the Jews. Well, this is not a really good thing. Because if there are no Jews, then from where is the Messiah, Jewish Messiah, going to come? But in the book of Esther, God's never mentioned. Prayer's never mentioned. People wonder, what's it doing in the Bible? It's not very religious. But it's all about God right behind the veil, making sure he implements his plan. But it's interesting in the book of Esther how he implements his plan. When, when Mordecai, the older cousin of, his, of uh, Esther, finds out about this and about this edict, that in 11 months, on the 13th day of Adar, all the Jews are going to be eradicated, he goes to Esther because now she won the beauty contest. She's the queen. And he says, you've got to get the queen to change his mind. She goes, oh, I can't do that. She says, anybody who goes before the king uninvited will be killed. The reason for that was because of all the assassination attempts against Xerxes. Four years earlier, they had two guys try to kill him. Sixteen years after the book of Esther closed, Xerxes is assassinated. So it's not paranoia, it's just a reality. You just don't pop into the court of the king because they're going to think you're there to assassinate him. And she says, the king hasn't called upon me for 30 days. I can't go before the king. I can't, I can't. And she really is a coward. But, but her cousin Mordecai basically says, hey, how do you know that you did not become royalty for this purpose of saving the whole nation? And remember, you're Jewish too. So after a three-day fast, she finally, those famous words, she says, if I perish, I perish. Do you think she stopped being afraid? I had the privilege here when I was pastoring Scottsdale Bible Church to be the pastor of General Joe Foss. I had the privilege of, in Washington, D.C., do in the snow the most remarkable experience of a memorial service. And as you know, he was a Congressional Medal of Water winner, and he introduced me to others. And, and all the different men who did these remarkable, courageous acts all agreed on one thing. They all were fearful. The fear never went away. 
But somehow they set the fear aside because they knew what the fear was, and they did. They thought, if it's my time, it's my time. And they did these remarkable things. The ancient Greek moralist said, God is a hope of courage, not an excuse for cowardice. Now, the, the Greek word that Peter actually uses that we mess with, call it virtue or, or, or moral excellence or bubble gum, is the word harate. And, and to come up, you want to know, well, how was the word used back in ancient days? This word harate. And we find in the Apocrypha, in 2 Maccabees, now, 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 we evangelicals believe that the Apocrypha is a remarkable history. We don't think it's the same level as Scripture, but it does tell us especially Jewish history. And in the 2nd century B.C., 2 Maccabees tells us about a man named Eleazar. This man had tremendous spiritual influence upon the people, and he defied the attack of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes was the king of the Greeks, and he was attacking Jerusalem, wanted to destroy Jerusalem. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, his name was really just Antiochus, but he renamed himself Antiochus Epiphanes, like an epiphany, the wonder man. Very humble, very humble young man. The Jews called him Antiochus Epimenes. Epimenes means wooden head. So there was not a real love relationship between the two. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes, or Epimenes, he finally gets... Eleazar, knowing his influence upon the nation of Jews, and he takes him into the temple and he, and he tries to force him to eat the flesh of swine and defile the temple. Eleazar won't do it. So they flog him. Then they permit him to eat some other meat, but to pretend it's pork. He refuses to do that. And then they flog him to death. The last statement defining this act, right out of 2 Maccabees, I quote it to you. And this man died leaving his death for an example of all noble courage and a memorial of virtue. Not only unto young men, but unto all his nation. Guess what that word virtue is in the Greek? The same word found there in the Greek translation of 2 Maccabees. Hirate. Hirate. Peter uses the exact same word because everybody knew exactly what it meant. Virtue speaks of a courage that will not compromise. That truth is so important. What you believe is something important to you, and that's why you believe it. You won't compromise it, no matter what. This isn't unlike what Daniel said in Daniel 1.8, when he was tempted to defile himself with the food of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel said he had made up his mind he would not defile himself. This is not unlike what Jesus said as he shared the Beatitudes. When he spoke of a pure heart, an unmixed heart. When do you make up your mind, I will not compromise what I believe to be true? This is not unlike what James said twice. He says, don't be double-minded. The word is dipsukoi. I've always liked the word dipsukoi. It sounds like dipstick. Don't be a dipstick. The word dipsukoi, dip, die, double, psukoi, sold. Don't be double sold. Don't be a coward and courageous. Make up your mind once and for all. So this isn't unlike what Paul says in, Hebrew, in Romans chapter 12, the first two verses. When Paul says, after all that God has done, he's made the move, his move on the chessboard. It's your move. And what is your move, Paul says, so using an aorist tense. For once and for all, make up your mind to present your soma, your body, as a living sacrifice to God. Aren't you glad it's living? 
But it's a living sacrifice to God, proving, proving to the world that the will of God, the plan of God is something beautiful, good. Sometimes people are so afraid of the will of God, they think you're, somehow God's going to make you break your legs and make you play the flute. No offense to the flute, wasn't that beautiful. But the point being is this, most people are afraid of the plan and the will of God. Who wants it around? It's going to be horrible. But see, God says, no, no. You know, God needs some of us who will say, we're not afraid of the plan of God. I'm not afraid of the will of God. I will commit my life to implement the will of God, the plan of God every day of my life. So, so, so what does virtue do? Basically, it sets aside fear to do what you believe to be true. But then from where does virtue come? I mean, we all want to be courageous. Who wants to be a wimp? So from where does virtue come? Mark Twain said, courage is a resistance to fear, not the absence of fear. It's been said that, quote, without fear, we can't have courage. We cannot be courageous unless we have something to protect, something to honor, something we believe is true. You see, courage and fear go hand in hand. Because if you don't know what you fear, you don't know what to set aside. And as long as your fears are nebulous to you, never been identified and articulated what you really fear, then you're not going to know what to set aside to ever be courageous. So you've got to know what you fear first if you're ever going to be virtuous and to be able to set it to the side. For Esther, what did she fear? If I perish, I perish. She feared death. Now, some of us may not fear that we're going to die for what we believe, Maybe in the future, but most likely right now not. But what do we fear? The fear of embarrassment, the fear of being mocked, the fear of being ostracized, losing respect, losing friends. Oh yeah, there, there, there's things that we all fear. But if I fear these things, why would I set these things aside? Comes down to what's more important to you than you? In other words, it comes down to this thing is what's really important to me. Holly and I have been talking about this for two, three weeks. She came up with this picture I think is great. She wrote a blog on it. It's coming out this week. Scale. Picture this scale. you got two sides to a scale. Now on this side, you pile up the scale on all those things you fear of losing. So you fear, okay, losing your life, losing your popularity, your job, making the deal, being successful, being respected, load it up, articulate, know what it is. Because you don't know what it is, you can never set it to the side. But then what's on the other side of the scale? Again, what's more important to you than you? That is, what's on this side of the scale that, you, that would outweigh your fear of what you could lose? The death of an innocent child? Would you willing to throw your life out there and take a great risk to save the life of your child? Your spouse? Are they on that side? How about the gospel and truth? You know, sometimes people have the death of a thimble. When you say you believe something... Does that mean something to you? And so is it on the side of the scale that the things that I believe to be true, 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I am here to honor my Father, does this outweigh all these other things I fear to lose? Because you better make up your mind before the opportunity presents itself. Are you going to embarrass yourself and the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does it take for me to bail out and compromise? Even Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 15, in his first letter, he said, now, now, always be ready to give a reason. Sanctify Jesus as your Lord. Show people that the fact you believe Jesus is your Lord is important to you. Show that off. Sanctify Christ as your Lord by always being ready to give a reason, an apologia, a defense for the hope that you have. When they see you don't compromise, someone's going to ask you, why not? And that's when you have to share your virtue. From where does courage come? Even our, our, our English word courage comes from the Latin core, like the core of something, speaks of your heart. The word is heart in Latin core. And this is something about what do you believe is true in your heart, the deepest part of your mind, your thinking, your passion. So if my heart has been changed by God and my conversion and my deepest desire of my heart as a follower of Christ is to honor God, then there is a godly fear that kicks in. I, I, I know many of you, and most of you I haven't had the privilege to get to know. I haven't really gone from being senior pastor here almost 11 years now. So some of you might remember this, but it's still my favorite story. John, my firstborn, turned 44 a couple days ago. But I still remember when he was six. And Holly wanted him to have swim lessons. Pastoring a little church, First Baptist San Luis Valley, Northern California, and, 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 and John's going to get swim lessons, 20 bucks. So I put my 20 bucks down, and he gets the lessons Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I have free time Friday afternoon, so I go to the pool. I want to see what I got for my 20 bucks. So I put John on one side of the deep end, and then I'm standing on the other side of the deep end. Okay, John, dive in and show me how you swim. And John looks at me, and he looks at the water, and he looks at me, and he looks at the water. And his little legs begin to just swim there. And he begins, he says, Dad, I, I can't, I, I can't. I said, come on, John, I'm here. Just dive in. You know how they taught you. Show me what you can do. Dad, I can't, I can't. John, I'm going to come around there, and if you don't dive in by the time I get there, I'm going to paddle your little Holly screaming at me, you're a horrible father. I'm saying, I'm not going to raise a girl. So we're fighting, and John's watching this thing. He decides to dive in. He dives in, swims to the other side, comes out with a big smile. Goes back, does it five more times. You say, what's the point of the story? Sometimes it takes a greater fear to cast out a lesser fear. <laughs> well, there is a godly fear of God. Not that God's going to come around the side of the pool and paddle our backside. But I really don't want to stand before Jesus Christ someday as a coward. As a man with no virtue. A man that was so shallow in his faith that I would compromise anything I believed to be true and there was no virtue within me. That does frighten me. Why is courage such a big deal? Remember I mentioned the book of Esther? 
God somehow never being mentioned, never being asked, through outside the veil of history, is still going to somehow implement his plan to preserve the Jews so in the future a Jewish Messiah would come into this world. How's he going to pull that off? He pulls it off through the courage of Esther. Because Esther would not compromise. And she recognized that she came into royalty for some purpose. She has this relationship for some purpose some influence for some purpose, and she sets her fear, she knows what it is, if I perish, I perish, sets the fear aside of her death, execution, and she shows virtue. And because she shows virtue, the plan of God is implemented that day through that woman's courage. There's something Paul says always bothered me, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says, calls us God's fellow workers. God's fellow workers. I was always told God doesn't need me and God doesn't need you. So where does Paul get off with this God's fellow workers? I mean, I've studied this thing for years. And literally it means that God will partner with us to do a work. And if we're not available to partner with him to do this work, the work does not get done. What's the work that I'm supposed to partner? What do I bring to the table that makes me God's fellow worker? What work is he talking about? Remember when the boys asked Jesus, you know, when we talk to God, what should we talk to him about? And Jesus gave us Matthew 6, what we call the Lord's Prayer. He says, first remember, he's your father in heaven. Our father art in heaven. Now the first thing you remember about your father in heaven is honor him. Hallowed be thy name. How do I honor my Father? Thy kingdom come. Where at? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. When? On earth. Where? Here. Now. As it is in heaven. That means God's will, God's plan implemented today, this moment. What do I bring to the partnership? My courage. My virtue. The fact I will not compromise what I believe to be true. And when God sees his children with courage, virtue. God partners and he literally implements his plan, his will for that day, for that moment, and you were the key because you are God's fellow worker. That's why we are following Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, the Son. That means we're gonna receive all that the son receives from the father as an inheritance, the kingdom, because we do what the son did. And what did the son do when he was on this earth? Remember in John 4, he said, my food is to do the will of God. John chapter 5, the father works, so I work. If Jesus was not courageous enough, remember in the garden, oh God, with blood coming into his eyes from his brow, he says, God, is there any other way? May this cup, May this cup be removed. I don't want to do this. I read the book and crucifixion hurts. But then immediately, what did he say? Not my will, but I will not compromise your will, God. And because of the virtue of the Son, Jesus Christ, he went to the cross and God partnered with his Son and made it a provision for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life and the covenant to become a child, a son and a daughter of the Father. So it is we as followers of Christ. 
This is virtue. That's why Peter says, God made the first move. He gave you faith, the capacity to trust in such a way you can believe and rest. But he says, now you bring to the table because he says supply at your own expense. This is your choice. Nobody can make you do this. God won't make you do this. That's why some Christians, they grow. They become Christ-like. And other Christians act like they've been baptized in pickle juice. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and why do some Christians change and others don't? Answer, virtue. That's the difference. In 47 years of ministry, that's what I've observed. Virtue. And that's why Peter says, this is the anchor. This is the first thing you add to your faith. There was a young girl I read in the paper some years ago. She was assigned to recite William Henley's godless poem, Invictus. Uh, a famous poem. Let me read it to you if you don't remember it. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have nor not winched or cried aloud under the bludgeoning of chance. My head is bloody, but it's unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And we go, ooh. That's a horrible poem. She refused to recite it because she would not compromise. This is not what she believed. Well, the reason I know about it is because it hit the newspapers. And when every attempt was applied to get her to recite that poem was, was, was basically didn't happen. And the community kind of uproared against this kid being picked on by the school system. Finally, they recanted and said she could go ahead and read a comparable poem, which she did. And this was the poem she read. Out of the light that dazzles me bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, conqueror of my soul, since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under that rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sins and tears, that life with him and his the aid, that spite the menace of the years keeps and shall keep me unafraid, I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared from punishments the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Go, girl! I mean, I read that. I just, I cried. And I went, that is virtue from a child. You know, in the same way Esther needed Mordecai to just prod her a little bit, to have a little courage, a little virtue. You know, that's what Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 is all about when it says, don't forsake the gathering yourself together, which is the habit of some, but stimulate one another. Remember that word stimulate speaks of a long pole with a point at the end. Sometimes we gotta poke each other a little bit to remind us of our virtue. If you're only hanging around wimpy Christians, could I suggest that you find some virtuous brothers and sisters in Christ and let some of their virtues splash over upon you and be with those who would stimulate you on the love and good deeds 
And you begin with the anchor to the whole thing. Because only when it's virtue, only when it's virtue, you will not compromise. You will not compromise what you believe to be truth. And the truth is you will honor God as your father by honoring the plan and the will of God, which he will use your virtue for each day to carry out his word. For our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven today, right now. God, give me this day my daily bread and forgive me my trespasses as I, as I forgive those who trespass against me. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Deliver me from anything that doesn't honor you this day. Deliver me from having the lack of virtue. Deliver me from compromising. Let the change in me be seen as I become more like your son, Jesus Christ, so that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, sometimes you wonder, what are we doing? We go to church, we worship, pray, we serve. And we're doing all kinds of things and our desire is to love you. Father, thank you for Peter's straightforward admonishment that, Lord, he wanted to be an example to all of us. That not only did we receive the same kind of faith that he received, and as he did what he did with it, may we do what we're going to do with it. We're going to first add at our own expense, we will supply, we will supplement our faith with virtue. Now we're ready to move on to the rest. This we ask to your glory in the name of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you. Walk worthy.